I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Koshi here. Before we get into this episode of The Call, I've got a favor to ask. The bigger the Ausbiz audience, the more we can invest in great content and keep providing quality investment ideas to you for free. If you could just take a minute of your time to leave a review of the call in the Apple Podcast app, it'll help keep our tribe growing. And of course, don't forget to catch up with all the best interviews each day at ausbiz.com.au. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the call. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Aussie Business Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Great to have your company for the next hour or so. This is a program that we tag the call uh, because you send in stocks that you want adjudicated on, buy, hold or sell. We put together an expert panel and in 60 minutes we analyse 10 of the stocks that you want us to take a look at today. The call is a little different. We're doing an ETF special, something that is dear to the heart of our many of our viewers. In fact, we we track the interest of uh, of viewers in a whole range of ways, and ETFs are always right up there. Also, they are a passion, almost a love, of one of our expert panelists today, Andrew Willard from uh, DP Advisory <laughs> Wealth Advisory in Toowoomba. Uh, mate, uh, um, ETFs are to Andrew like the Fifty Shades of Grey are to most other blokes, and he is so passionate about it. Andrew Willard, how are you, sir? Koshi, what do I say? <laughs> um, as little as possible, say, I think. Th- thank you for the introduction. Yeah, no, no. Well, we started doing these specials on the call at Andrew's suggestion, Correct. and uh, they've been incredibly popular and. Uh, his uh, partner in crime on the panel today, another old mate of the call, uh, Adam Dawes from from Shoreham Partners. Adam, plenty of grey. Yeah, yeah. Plenty, <laughs> plenty of grey there. Fifty Different shades. Sh- Fifty shades of grey on Absolutely. his head. Absolutely. So, uh, all right. So we're going to take a look at exchange traded funds, obviously. Um, so let's start off with you, Andrew. Not going to do a stock of the day. Um, we're going to talk about what do you look for an exchange traded fund. First of all, uh, who do they suit? What sort of what sort of clients are attracted to ETFs? Yeah, great, good question, Koshi. And it really depends upon your frame of reference, whether you're an active, <coughs> excuse me, active investor or a passive investor. So, if I'm a passive investor and I just want to do what the share market does, and I don't necessarily want to be sort of trying to pick a winner or otherwise, I can just pick a very broad-based Australian-focused, if Australia is the market that you want to do. So you might buy something like A200 or S2W or IOZ would probably be the three that come to mind. And they just literally buy the top 200 companies in Australia. So you're not trying to work out, is BHP better than Rio, better no. than Wes Farmers? So it's an index fund. Uh, 
it's an index fund, but Koshi, the other really important thing is because a lot of people go, well, look, you know, I can pick shares, which I'm sure a lot of people can, but oh, you see yourself as an example. So you're sitting at home, the trusty viewer or podcast listeners, it would be. Put your hand up if you've got CSL. So looking around the room there, I reckon maybe around 10% of you do. Good on yep. you, Koshi. And my second question to you is, do you hold it in the correct weight relative to the index? So keep your hand up if CSL is 8 to 9% of your index, of your investments rather. So if it isn't, then you're actually putting yourself behind relative to index returns because the 90% that didn't put their hand up CSL has been one of the best performing shares in the Australian share market over the last 10 years. So indexing is not only around having that broad depth, but more importantly, or as importantly, having the right um, mix as right. such. Okay. So that's part of it, Koshi. The other one, just coming back to your question, is that's the passive crew. If I'm active, you know, at the moment we're seeing that there's a big run in resources. So I'm trying to work out is BHP better than Rio, better than Fortescue, why wouldn't I just buy an ETF that buys all of them and take an active view on that particular thematic? So ETFs can suit okay. any type of investor. Okay. Dorsey, what's the mm. difference between an ETF, mm. a listed investment company, mm. or a managed fund? So basically the difference is that there's a market maker. Now, a market maker is in there to create the price of the listed ETF when in NLIC, there's the market, there's no market maker, so it's the up to the bid and the offer, so the the buyers and sellers, and then in a managed fund, you only get to see a unit price, so you don't actually get to see the underlying shares. So an ETF actually gives you transparency, visibility on the shares that they hold, right. plus there's a market maker in there creating so a market liquidity. liquidity, but also the price. So it will hold what the value of the shares or the ETF should be yep. throughout the day. So it gives you one to get out, it gives you liquidity as well as to buy and sell, but it actually represents the correct price. Some LICs are always undervalued or overvalued and you don't know what their NTA is. So um, an ETF actually gives you the correct price uh, okay. for that business. So okay. yeah, look, you look at spread as right. a way to sort of work out the work And their that fees out. are generally lower? Fees are, yes, definitely uh, the MER, the management expense ratio. Generally around Vanguard is probably the cheapest out of all of them. Uh, and then you sort of ratchet up. But anything around that sort of 0.3 to 0.4 or 40 basis mm. points is where, and now we know fees do attract, detract from performance over the longer term. So it's great to have an ETF in the portfolio because of that lower MER okay. management expense ratio. All right. Um, Andrew, what do you look for in an ETF? How long is a piece of string, Koshi? Um, I, I would maybe start with, again, and remember the frame that we're looking at it. Yes. Am I active? Am I passive? But, you know, one of the things you might think about is what index are they following? Uh, what rules, if they're active, what rules? So we're going to talk about qual in a moment, Q-U-A-L. So what rules does qual have in place relative to the index that it's tracking? Um is the ETF that you're thinking about a core part of your holdings? So again, you know, one of the ones we're going to talk about is an international one. Should that be a core part of your holding? And what might be considered to be a satellite holding, something that's not necessarily core, but will add alpha, add outperformance to your portfolio? Um, what's, Dawes, you just touched on it before, what's the management expense ratio? What's the fee that you're being charged? So there's some ETFs, uh, in Australia, I'm just trying to remember, I think it's, um, it's 
sorry, having a brain fade here, I think it's VTS, it's four basis point. So 0.004 of a percent. Whereas there are others that is like 1%. So why am I paying the fees relative to, and again, you know, we then compare them to listed investment companies and also to managed funds. What am I getting for my MER? And we're going to talk about a diversified ETF later on today. We can maybe dive in a little bit more around what's the MER and what am I paying for there. Uh, two other very quick ones. What's the funds under management? How big is the ETF? Because if the ETF doesn't sort of get some traction in its first couple of years, because we're just saying that the fees they're charging, three or four basis points, the average, if I was to pick a number, is probably about, say, 20 basis points. The fund, the people putting the funds together, your Vanguards, your beta shares, your VanX, whoever, they're not going to keep it going if it's not achieving critical mass. So if it's a small fund, you want to be careful that uh, it's not going to be sort of closed on you. And then finally, just because you think you've identified the good one, who are the competitors? Who's offering a similar type of product? And again, one of the questions today asks us to do that, sort of a compare and contrast one versus the other. So broadly speaking, that'd be some of the things I'd be thinking about. Okay. All right. So there's there's an enormous number available, mm. aren't there, on the market, Dorsey? Well, um, not as many as the US. Right. US oh. has got like thousands. I think we're... Right. And someone's going to prove me wrong, but 150, I think, is around sort of what we've got at the moment here, which is great because it does give us that spread. But the US is massive in this space. So, yeah, we're we're a little bit less than than what's happening overseas. Okay, so they handle all the exchange risk if they're investing overseas, all that sort of stuff, like a normal manager. Yeah, correct. So um, there are listed ones here in Australia that... um, uh, that are hedged or unhedged. So that's right. the first thing. The second thing is where are they domiciled? So are they domiciled here in Australia or overseas? And if they're overseas, there's more paperwork, W8 Ben right. forms clients need to fill out. But I think a lot of that's been taken away and they're all more domiciled here in, in Australia. And then when we look at deceased estates with ETFs that are domiciled overseas, there's more regulations that go into uh, that as well. Okay. But most of the ETF providers now have taken away the domicile of being overseas and all brought them here in Australia. I think there's only right. a couple left. So uh, it is a lot easier for Australian investors to get access to international markets, indexes, stocks via these ETFs. So it's been yeah. a massive growth area for the market. And Andrew, when you put together a client's portfolio, do you look at ETFs as sort of, if you like, a foundation for the portfolio, a mixture of ETFs, and then people are interested in the share market, they can do individual stocks or whatever, but knowing they've got that base there? Yeah, just Koshi, I'm a single track type of guy. So I might just quickly come back to something that Adam said, which is absolutely yeah. bang on. And that estate planning piece is not something that gets a lot of traction. But right. if you were holding something US domiciled and you meet an untimely demise, you are potentially looking and, you know, not tax advice, but you are potentially looking at US estate planning uh, taxes, uh, US estate taxes. It is an absolute disaster. So, you know, I've got people coming to me going, I've got ARC funds and good luck to you, but be incredibly careful. Go and get that expert advice. Wow. because you are potentially stepping on a number of landmines. And no, and I'm not picking on ARC, I'm just saying anything that is yeah. um, US domiciled, dependent upon which state it's domiciled, will then relate to their uh, death taxes. And it's just an Jeez. absolute, mm. yeah. So oh, danger, that... Will Robinson, danger. Anyway, yeah, yeah. back to your question uh, relating to the asset allocation piece. Yeah. So 
pre-2018, we would use ETFs just in a modular basis. So in other words, someone would come to us or I'd look at their portfolio and go, gee, you're a bit light on an international. Let's buy you VGOD, just to pick an example. Um, whereas today, predominantly our clients who come in the door, new clients, it's actually model ETF portfolios. And the reason we do that, Koshi, is because I look at the data that comes from S&P in their SPIVA report, and their SPIVA report basically shows that active managers over a 15-year basis in Australia, 86% of active managers, so that's your fund managers, uh, will basically fail to meet the benchmark. So in other words, simply by buying someone a range of ETFs across a number of asset classes, just by doing that, I've immediately put them into the top 14% of performance returns because they're just going to meet the market. And then that's the core bit. And then hopefully with the satellite bit, your thematics, your autonomous vehicles or your biotechnology or your cybersecurity or whatever's floating your boat, that's where you're going to drive your alpha. But for the clients that have already got existing portfolios, think about your asset allocation. You know, what's my international exposure? What's my Australian exposure? And then do I want to pick Australian shares? Great. You do that. But if I'm a bit light on an international, instead of trying to pick which of the top 1,543 companies you want, why wouldn't you just buy an ETF that does it for you in one trade at 21 basis points and yeah. handles all that US estate planning stuff because it's Australian domicile? Yeah, uh, I do it a little bit differently and I really uh, uh, like the way Andrew's talking about that, uh, that model where, you know... Well, why are you shaking your head when he was talking? Well... <laughs> Oh, just, no one saw that on camera. Uh, no, no, no. Look, I, I do it a little bit differently. I, I will uh, individually pick uh, a certain amount of stocks in the Aussie market, like I'm a stockbroker. So right. I will, yeah, yeah. I will in the Australian market, I will pick individual stocks and I will look to get a, a, a base of portfolio shares for for the market. And I think I can potentially outperform the market with the choice of the stocks that I have in that Australian equity component. But then going on from that strategic asset allocation, I will definitely choose international, fixed income, property, yeah. all of those kinds of things. I'll use ETFs right. to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I just That's do it right. a little bit differently. Um, and and yeah. look, 15 years later, Andrew and I will sit down and we'll see who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> Uh, sorry, right. and uh, yes, I, I think Adam is absolutely bang on. So you, those numbers I just quoted you, that was a 15 number. Let's look at last year. Last year, that number was 60% active managers outperformed the Correct. index. Right, okay. So there will actually be pockets of time subject to market conditions. So if we yeah. go back 12 months, you know, banks have done pretty well, resources have done pretty well in particular. By being an active manager and overweight BHP, overweight Combank, whatever, that's how you would have added alpha to a portfolio. Whereas if I go back, say, last year, sort of February top to March bottom, my average, and I'm sure without picking on Adam, I'm sure his clients were the same, the average just straight Australian share portfolio, no ETFs, that portfolio fell 39% from the February 27 to March 23. Whereas a model ETF portfolio fell 12%. So really when you're using it, and so I'm not suggesting for a moment ETFs are bulletproof or whatever, like they still copped a bit of pain. But my point is that if you're using ETFs, what you're doing is you're minimizing that volatility. Volatility on the downside like last year, but you're also missing some of that upside when things are coming good again. They're constraining volatility, or as we like to say, better risk-adjusted returns. So one in four of my clients are self-managed super funds, do they necessarily, when they're in their golden years, want to be sort of copying 39, 40% moves in their portfolio? No. Yep. Or 
do they want to cop a 12% move in their portfolio? Well, they probably don't want either, but if they have to choose one of the two, they choose the 12, not the 39. Yeah. So that's the rationale. But Adam is bang on. Last year, that was absolutely a time to be an active manager. Okay. All right. Let's get into uh, the 10 ETFs that you want uh, the team to take a look at. And um, Andrew, the first one, Malcolm wants to be on Vanguard's MSCI Index International Shares ETF. Now, the MSCI is like the all ordinaries of global indexes, is it? 100%. So it's basically an amalgam of US markets, UK market, um, European markets, Japanese markets, ex-Australia Koshi. Yep. Really important that you, we keep that in mind. So, you know, we we're talking before about core versus satellite. This would be a core holding. Right. If we're looking across a client's portfolio, and again, it's going to vary from client to client, but you would think, what do you think, Adam, 25% of your portfolio subject to attitudes risk would be at least some form of offshore exposure. So in that, if we're breaking it into segments, you'd say, well, from a core point of view, what's an ETF I could look at? So as Malcolm's just said, uh, VGAD, it's got about $1.5 billion worth of um, monies that it's um, looking after. It's hedged, and that's a really important thing. So basically, if the Aussie dollar's all over the show, doesn't matter. That uh, Vanguard's looking after that for you. You're paying 21 basis points, 0.2 of 1%. Let's say you had a different view and you said, look, I think the Aussie dollar is going to fall. You can actually buy VGS, which is sort of its cousin, its, its, its um, brother, sister, mm-hmm. and they, um, they charge uh, a little bit less, uh, for, sorry, VGAD is eight, 18 basis points, VGS is 21 basis points. So for the extra three basis points, you're getting some hedging in there, protecting you against the movement of the dollar. Over the last three years, this um, VGAD has returned about 13% per annum. So to me, we use this one a lot. I hold right. it personally. I okay. like it. It's a All good right. it's a goodie. Dawson. <clears throat> yeah, well, look, it's, in, it's interesting because uh, Andrew's right, $1.5 billion of funds under management. That's one of the largest yeah. ETFs uh, for international equities out there. So it's a cracker of that. I do prefer the VGS because the, the hedging, I think, look, we, you know, might as well ride the Aussie dollar where you can. So for me, I think the VGS is a better one to go for. And I think the, 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 the hedge side of things, I think, you know, Albeit three basis points, you're paying a little bit overs, which is which is okay. I think liquidity as well as the tight spreads is a real benefit to this one, both for the the VGAD and the VGS. It's semi income uh, annual income distributions, and it has exposure to 1,500 global equities over 20 different countries. So. Wow. We talk about spreading risk. We talk about making sure that you, you don't have Too all much. your eggs in one <laughs> eggs in one basket. So this is a really good sort of base one for a client that comes into me and says, "Look, I've got thirty thousand dollars to invest. You know, I want to get access to global equities. How do yeah. I do it? This is a great way right. to do it." But you go the unhedged version. I go the unhedged version because I'm right. just a little bit more um, risk or happy to take on a little bit more risk. Right. So VGS is probably, so if it's a buy, hold, sell, uh, VGS is a buy, VGAD, if you've got it, definitely hold it. All right. it it's okay. a fantastic business. Um, but it also has the ability to do dividend reinvesting as well. So that's uh, quite an, a unique function inside ETFs is that, that it has the uh, DRP quarterly function in there as well. So with that DRP, obviously international stocks don't give you the huge amounts of income that you, we like here in Australia. But that DRP 
definitely allows you to grow that uh, that portfolio oh. size and continue to, to okay. make that going. So that's, I think that's a really good oh. distinction uh, with the VGAD. That is a good bell and whistle to yep. add to it. All right. Thank you there, Malcolm. Now, John wants a view, Adam, on the BetaShares S&P 500 equal weight ETF. Yeah, so it's an interesting one as well because everyone's asking for international stuff here. We're not really asking about the Aussie stuff, and I think right. that's great. Five years ago, we used to talk about ETFs and they used to say, well, what is an ETF? I think that conversation has definitely moved on now. Yeah. I think we're now talking about what's the best ETF for my portfolio. So the education that the ETF providers have done has been fantastic because it's not now what is an ETF or, or most people say EFT, but uh, ETF and then going forward. So this one is an equal weight S&P 500. I think this is a really, really great one going forward for investors that want to get a core holding in the US equities position. Now, there's another one, IVV, which is the iShares one. Right. So both are doing the same kind of thing. But this one is an equal weight versus the IVV. And, the, and it gives a greater market exposure to the economic recovery. Now, the US has obviously done very, very well. And obviously, going forward, we still like to have some kind of weighting to that S&P 500. Um, over the last sort of uh, over the last twelve months, it's you know outperformed by thirty two percent, so it's done very very well. Um, I think it's a buy from me. I think it's one of those ones. I like IVV as well, but I like this Beta Shares one. Um, it gives us that exposure to US and comfortable to have right. it in the portfolio. Okay. And of course, people who don't follow American markets, you have, you have the Dow Jones Index, which is a bit like the the All Lords, a smaller, smaller parcel of shares Correct. that it takes. S and P five hundred. Is obviously, as the name implies, the 500 biggest stocks listed on the market. So yeah. it's a bit broader, Andrew, as well as that. Yeah, so um, this one's in the Sarand Andrew and Sarah Super Fund. So I own this one personally, and right. uh, I'm really relaxed in doing so because I like the equal weight strategy. Correct. So as Adam was just talking about before, the top five companies in the S&P 500 account for around 22% of the index. So let's just let that sink in for a moment. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, um, they account for 22% of the index. Wow. So IT is actually 27% of the S&P 500. So if IT is having a bad time because we're worried about interest rates and inflation, the S&P is going to get crunched. Whereas if you have uh, an equal weight, each share is only 0.2% of the portfolio. So those five I just mentioned would barely make up 1%. So in other words, it helps spread your risk. Uh, there's an equal weight ETF in Australia as well called MBW, which is another one that we really like as well. So equal weight as a strategy is a really good one to have in your portfolio. We really like QUS because we feel that if interest rates were to rise, then that IT overexposure, IT sector overexposure is going to hurt the S&P. And this was actually going to give us some protection, but equally so still liking the US, so it's a buy. Yeah, but it's it's interesting, is that? Because a lot of people would think, oh, aren't all those big tech companies in the NASDAQ? Um, why do, wouldn't I just buy a NASDAQ index? Mm. Yeah, no, well, they, you, you do have that sort of um, over crossover, if I can put it that way. Yeah. But, um, I mean, they're huge companies, and there's nothing wrong with Apple and Microsoft, and not suggesting there are, but... If you think about where um, inflation is at the moment, is it transitory? Is it becoming entrenched? What's the US Fed going to do with interest rates? And a lot of these IT businesses are actually valued on discounted cash flows. And so if interest rates are going higher, their DCF valuation will be less. 
and that's going to impact. And we've already seen that sort of that February, March period where there was a big yeah. correction in IT companies. Yeah. We'll talk about some of that again in a second. This is a way to keep your US exposure but not be overly exposed to that tech sell-off okay. if it were to occur again. Yep. All right. Uh, thank you for that, John. Now, Jason wants a view, Andrew, on the VanEck Vectors MSCI World X Australia, X Oz quality, Australian quality. Jason says, can you give me a guide? How does this stack up against the beta shares ETF uh, QLTY? So let's talk about what it is first, and then we can do the compare and comparison. So we spoke about VGAD as sort of being that 1,500-odd companies. So what Qual does, I'll focus on Qual, but QL, QLTY, which is the beta shares one, does a similar type of thing. It runs a screen. So in other words, it's sort of sticking all those companies' financials into its system and saying, let's have a look at its return on equity. Let's look at how much debt they have. And let's look at the stability of the earnings. So in the case of QUAL, it's doing that every 90 days. And at the moment, there's 299 companies that have good return on equity, low levels of debt, and have got stable, if not increasing, earnings. Because if you think about it, that's pretty common sense. If I'm trying to buy a good business, what are the characteristics of a good business? They're making good money, they don't have a heap of debt, and they've got that strong return on funds invested. Um, if you have a look at the return of QUAL relative to VGAD, it's up uh, around 3% per annum higher than if you were just to buy um, VGAD as an example. So that sort of active piece that trying to focus on quality businesses is actually adding alpha, it's actually adding out performance. So when we're building portfolios at one end of the barbell is VGAD, and then at the other end of the barbell is QUAL, and you sort of get that blended return between the two, where you're getting um, good quality returns by holding both. Uh, MER is not too bad at around 0.4 of a percent, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Um, to the question relating to QLTY relative to QUAL, QLTY, the beta shares product, has a lower MER, it's about 29 basis points. So to Adam's point around MER sort of detracts from yeah. performance, so the higher your cost, the, the, the lower the performance. The other thing is the sharp ratio. So the sharp ratio basically is a measure of how much additional per, uh, performance are you gaining for a given level of risk. Uh, QLTY has about 25% better sharp score relative to QUAL. So um, probably the key difference between the two, Koshi, is that QUAL has a heavier US bias. It's about 74, 75% US relative to QLTY, which is about 65%. So if, you're, if you think that the US is the place to be, then certainly QUAL is the way to go, but there's nothing wrong at all with QLTY. I own Qual, very relaxed about it. There is a hedged version as well, QHAL, but this is one that we buy a lot of. Okay. Adam? What more can I say? Yep. <laughs> he, he talks. He can talk, yeah. He's, he's got, I got five points and he's covered them all. So right. uh, I think it really comes down to the, the question really comes down to performance. Yeah. And Andrew's done a really great job of sort of putting out the differences between the two of the businesses, one wing qual and the beta shares product. But if we're just looking at performance, so performance of that overall, Qual, Qual uh, which is the 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 uh, the Van Eck Van one, yep. has a one year return of five fifteen point eight percent versus fourteen percent for the Beta Shares one. Mm-hmm. A two year one, it is twenty point six eight versus twenty point seven two. So Beta Shares beats it on a two year, and on a three year, 
possibility that um, the, the qual outperforms the beta shares one by 18.2 to 17.3 so performance wise it's pretty close like yeah, it's absolutely. it's within a percent to two percent over that one year two year and three years okay. so it really goes down to sort of what you what you're interested in and what you like but it does as andrew said it does have that high ROE, stable earnings growth and good financial leverage so that's probably where i'd stay with qual on that okay one. all right Okay, uh, Adam, Jerry wants a view on the BetaShares Asia Technology Tigers ETF. Yeah, so obviously Asia is a huge area for Australia and obviously we're very close to what's going on uh, here in Asia. And there's a massive growing of middle class over, the, over there of high quality potential, one internet, e-commerce adaption, all of those kinds of things. And this Asia Tigers uh, fund actually captures a lot of that. So Asia tech stocks have outperformed global stocks over the the sort of November to January period and then sort of peaking mid-February as well. Um, So a lot of the performance, and I guess you can see that sort of February to March retracement that's happened was bond yield spiked, uh, unwinding of a leverage in some of the Chinese tech names going forward. And then regulatory pressure against Chinese authority on commission data collection and financial or fintech as well. So that's why we've seen this little bit of an unwind in that. But I think over the longer term, uh, Asia or these beta shares, Asia tech, there's another one, IAA, which is the... um, the iShares one as well. They both have that sort of exposure. And I really like this tech side with the beta shares one. I think these guys have really got it well. Looking ahead, the fundamentals are still very strong for Asia. And I think the growth is definitely likely to improve to the upside of that. And I think really um, you'll start to see this Asia one starting to move forward in there. Mm. The returns have been pretty good. I think it's a really good portfolio stock for that Asia tech exposure. Okay, Andrew? One of my faves, Koshi, not the fave, but certainly one of my faves. We seem to be running through a few of my favourites today. Um, 50% exposure to China. So if uh, you think that China is going to keep on keeping on, then certainly this is one that you need to be thinking about. Uh, it's got companies like Tencent in there, Taiwan Semiconductor, Samsung, Alibaba, JD.com. So these are all significant technology players. And considering what the West is doing, firstly, with Trump and now with Biden relating to isolating the Chinese on a technology basis, all that it really is going to do is embolden them and force them to innovate. And so having exposure to these Asian Chinese companies and Chinese companies that are actually sort of innovating um, is certainly a place that you want to be. Uh, The other thing you might remember, my friend, the Sharp ratio. So anything over one is good. Uh, Their Sharp ratio is three. So, you know, when I'm doing my monthly scan of the market and which ETFs are looking appealing, Sharp is absolutely one place that I'm looking at and of a Sharp ratio of three is super appealing. So I'm very happy with it. MER is a little out there at 0.67, but as you can see, you know, if it's returned, uh, presume that's over the last 12 months, if it's returned 49%, we're happy to pay away 0.6 as a fee of that. So it's a, uh, it's a buy. Okay. All right. Um, now, Peter, Andrew wants a view on the BetaShares Global Agricultural Companies ETF. Yeah, I've been buying quite a bit of this lately, Koshi. Uh, I note that uh, regular contributor to uh, 
to Ausbiz James Whelan was on this very early, sort of in the low five dollars. So hat tip to James. Well played to you, my friend. <laughs> um, I was sort of in at sixes, and I think we're about seven forty or something like that at the moment. Uh, as the name suggests, it's focused on agricultural style investments, uh, things like uh, machinery, things like fertilisers, things like packaged meats. It's quite low. If you the farm is quite low. If you remember one of my sort of measures. Um, is that I'm sort of looking at how many uh, dollars are invested with it. It's only 37 million. So if I was to try and pick a hole in it, that's probably something that would be a little bit of an amber light. But it's got companies like Archer Daniels, Kabako, Tyson Foods. It's exposure to the US, to Japan and to Canada. It's hedged, so if the dollar gets out of control on you, you've got a bit of protection there. But Koshi, the reason we've been buying, well, two reasons we've been buying it, one thing relates to sort of the climate change events that are occurring at the moment. So you look at the northern winter as an example. It has extended longer than, uh, than what is normal. So that planting season in the northern hemisphere has been delayed. And similarly in South America, well, there's two issues in South America. There's a bad drought at the moment, but you've also got the Peruvian government that's deciding, a left-wing government that's just been elected and deciding to tax all their big businesses at 75%. So, you know, big disincentive from a supply point of view. So you've got the climate change piece, but you've also got big food inflation that's coming through at the moment as well. Mm -hmm. So between those two things, we're quite concerned about inflation. So this is a tool to sort of have in your kit bag to help protect you against that. And even if inflation is not a thing, it's a transitory thing, then the climate change article um, argument is certainly one. So quite like this one. Okay. Mm. Yeah, look, I agree with Andrew. This one, uh, commodities are, uh, I guess, and we're talking about food commodities, yes. not material commodities. Yeah. But commodities are, are broadly um, a standout inflation hedge against conventional assets. So this is a really good way. I mean, that inflation word has been bantered around ridiculously over the last sort of three, four weeks. And, you know, there's lots of people coming to me saying, well, how do I hedge against inflation or how do I fight against inflation? Now, the tide is coming, certainly with the higher costs, CPI, GDP, all of these kinds of things. I think inflation is here to stay and it will continue to stay going forward. So this is a great way to uh, hedge against those conventional assets, Mm. as well as agricultural companies uh, arguably arguably a superior way to play commodity strength, not just in food themselves, but also then how they actually... uh, feed the world and obviously there's lots of talk about feeding the world and how that's going to happen this one is a is a really great way of doing that and so i think it's a great portfolio to uh, a stock to have in your portfolio it is hedged so it does have uh that takes out the effect of that currency fluctuation again potentially that is a, a good one and it also then helps with that sort of portfolio performance keeps it moving in a steady line so yeah food is a very good one okay so that. but uh, andrew was saying what it's only got 37 million in it yeah so so, it's a bit small is there an alternative that is bigger i don't think so in that yeah no no no. not not locally listed but it's growing like i'm not saying 37 millions like i'm not saying it's stagnant i'm just saying you know beginning of the show what are you looking at it is low but it is growing and you know people like adam and i saying it's worthwhile buying maybe uh, that will help propel it along. So there are ETFs that will, um, if, if they don't have enough market capitalization or enough funds under management, it, it's not worth their while to keep 
yeah. that going. Okay. And that's fair. You're a business. You've yeah. got a certain amount of portfolios. Yeah, All the money's manager. flowing into yep. one. You're gonna, you, you've got to get rid of some of the others. But when they say that there's not enough uh, funds under management, there's always a market maker in there, okay? Right. So you can move in and out. And 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 beta shares, as well as all of these other ETFs, last year cancelled a few ETFs. Now, that means that, yes, um, you, you'll get a price for what it's... You got at, your money back right? got at your, that time. Well, you got yeah. your money back as of what the portfolio is worth. Right. So, yeah. yes, whether that's positive or negative, yeah. you definitely got your money back. But... Really, at the end of the day, if more and more people start to get into these things, these things will survive. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the criteria is looking at that market capitalization. But I shouldn't be the only thing that you should look at. You should look at many other things that go inside okay. of that ETF. All right. Let's recap the uh, the first five uh, ETFs that we uh, we did. The Vanguard um, International Share One, uh, VGAD, um, Andrew is a yes. Adam's a whole, he likes the unhedged yeah. version of this, which Roll is the a better dice. buy. Yeah. Uh, Beta shares S&P 500, um, a yes from, well, basically all of them, uh, Vanek, the MSCI one, the Asia Tigers and the Global Ag uh, are all a yes from the guys um, as they like them. Um, here on the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July, thanks to our partner, NAB Trade. Uh, all the stocks or ETFs that get two thumbs up by our expert panel go into the portfolio. If they come up again, even in front of a different panel and don't get unanimous thumbs up, they then go out. Let's take a look at how it's been performing for the week up 2%, the month 2%, wow. and almost 33% since the 1st of July. Uh, taking a look at some of the stocks recently added, Appen, uh, which is interesting. Mm. Guys see it's at the bottom of the market. Abacus Property Group, Universal Stores, Nanosonics and Net Wealth. Some of the stocks removed on the uh, Bridgeway, uh, Pacific Smiles, Event Hospitality and E-Road. You can look at all the stocks in the shares portfolio. Go to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Um, and coming up uh, 3.20 later this afternoon, uh, Rhino Hare, the Chief Executive Founder of Key Path Education, listed this morning, Macquarie Bank's new IPO following uh, Newix, which was their previous one. And uh, Dorsey was at the launch of this today and yep. it did way better than uh, Newix is doing. So that's Over the longer term, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So Key, Key Path Education is sort of uh, a bit like IDP. Yeah, it? it's yeah. an online for higher education, so higher university education. side yeah. of things. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So it'll be fascinating to talk to Ryan and get an explanation of that after uh, a successful uh, listing today. All right, let's um, go into our second uh, five ETFs. Uh, Andrew Elizabeth wants a view on uh, the S&P Biotech, the ETF S&P Biotech, uh, Cure, C-U-R-E, uh, what do you think of that? And also, um, do you need to look at the actual portfolio to make sure it represents the headline of it, the tag of it, the description of it? Uh, I was thinking oh. sort of agricultural, global agricultural companies, that's not just farms, that would be Caterpillar and John yep. Deere, could yep. be fertilizer businesses, could yep. be a whole range of things, yep. couldn't it? 100%. And look, these ETF providers have got amazing resources, I'm sure Adam would agree, on their websites. 
where you can really do a, a great deep dive to the point, Koshi, where you can actually download. So try doing this with a LIC or a managed fund in sort of a day's lag, log on to the ETF manufacturer's website and you can actually get an Excel spreadsheet with all of the holdings in the, yeah. in the weightings. Gee, that's so really good to transparency, if, isn't it? If, if, if you are so inclined and you don't have a life, with due respect, you can download those and buy them all yourself. Right. You know? Okay. So right. Fair enough. Can't get more transparent more. than that. Cost yeah, it costs you a bit more. <laughs> a couple, couple of dollars in brokerage. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but coming back to Cure, um, I was uh, on The Drop, which is, uh, th- well, I'm on a Thursday, yeah. uh, and talking with Andrew and Cara, and they put me on the spot in December, and, you know, what are, what are the top three ETFs you like for 2021? And I said, oh, Cure. Cure's a, Cure's a cracker. And uh, Cure has not been a cracker so far. So if anything, this is a bit of redemption. Uh, I still like Cure. Cure, though, is under pressure. It basically follows the S&P 500 sub-index, the biotechnology sub-index. So it's got companies like uh, a number of the vaccine manufacturers. Moderna, as an example, is in there. Right. But it's being hurt by a few things. One, it's, one of the things it's being hurt by is the fact that, and I touched on it before, that as US bond yields are rising, the DCF valuations, the discounted cash flow valuations are falling because a number of these companies are not making profits at the moment and they've got pretty high borrowing costs relating to the R&D that's impacting them. Uh, We've also got the fact that in the portfolio, there's been a couple that have actually not performed as in they had uh, clinical trials and these trials haven't performed as well as Mm -hmm. been expected. But if I look at the overall thematic of it, biotechnology is certainly, and say, take that RNA technology, and that's how we've got these vaccines. Uh, Once we get through COVID, which of course we will, then all attention will focus to how else can we modify these RNA technology to look at other um, diseases that have been impacting us, you know, cancer or whatever the case may be. So from my point of view, longer term, very relaxed with it. But as you can see there on the chart, it's going to be a very bumpy ride. So when we were talking before about core versus satellite, this is absolutely not a core. This is a satellite, but I'm still pretty relaxed with it, albeit bumpy. Okay. Adam? I've always struggled with biotechs. Always. One, because it's a binary outcome. Does the technology work or does it meet at endpoint? Yes, it does. Stock goes higher. If it doesn't, stock goes lower. Mesoblast is a classic example of everyone hyping in there and the stock (laughs) rallying and then them not finding their endpoint and then moving lower. So for me, biotechs are way too risky and I don't invest in any biotechs anymore because of that binary outcome, yes or no. If I was to be pushed, I think Cure is a very good one because you get a diversified base and you don't have to worry about is this technology going to work, yes or no, those kinds of things. So... For me, yes, I like Cure. I think it is. But the sector, I'm not a fan of at all. Okay. And I agree with Andrew. It is that satellite kind of thing that you would look at. The ETF guys have got some fantastic ones. Robo, uh, which is also AI. They've got um, um, ACDC, which is battery technology. So have a look at some of those versus the biotech sector. Biotech sex is tough. And then we talk about vaccines. And I'm wondering, we looked at Pfizer the other day and why Pfizer hasn't really rallied on the amount of masses amount of vaccines that yeah. these guys are putting out. But you actually look into it, they don't make a lot of money on vaccines. That margin is so, so fine. 
So I just feel biotechs as a whole, it's you have to be knowing what you have to know what you're doing, you have to understand it, and it's not for me the sector. Okay. If you're going to do it, Cure is a great one, diversified okay. across the board, and you can spread your risk. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yes. Koshi, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. But it's good. Yeah, I'd just be, it's I'd good. be careful. All right, um, Mark wants a view, Adam on the Van Eck Global Clean Energy. Here we go. I'm struggling with this at the moment because I've got a lot of clients in fossil fuels. Right. So Woodside, Santos, Origin, AGL. Yeah. Like It used to be a portfolio staple. Yeah. But the wall of money, right? The wall of money, the amount of money that is going into clean energy and yeah. that is going into this, you can't ignore it anymore. Yeah. And I've got a really great piece from our analyst just the other day that talked about Shell, Exxon, and uh, another large gas uh, oil company in the US talking about how they're going to diversify their earnings. How yeah. are they going to get rid of this wall of money that is coming? Because basically 85% of the global energy needs is still run by fossil mm. fuels. Yeah. Right? And we'll be Should I repeat while. that again? Yeah. 85% <laughs> of global energy needs are done within fossil fuels. So the amount of pension funds, the amount of people that are pushing for this green energy, it's going to have to happen. Do you stick with the energies of the world, the fossil fuels, because it is still part of it? Or do you go to the other side, the dark side or the green side, and you look at that and say, okay, we want some of our portfolio to be in something like this. So I think clean or the Vanek clean global energy one, I think is very, very good. And I think everybody should definitely be looking at ethically sustainable businesses going forward because yeah. that wall of money is not going yeah. to stop. ESG is pretty powerful at the moment, isn't okay. it? And you can be in both. Yeah. <laughs> but the money the money is definitely moving towards that sector. Yeah. So I think you've got to be... And if, if we have this Paris Agreement 2030, 2050, it's said to be $4 trillion a day needs to be spent to get to that level. Yeah. So there's okay. a massive amount of yeah. money that's going in. So yeah. I think this one is really good. It's invested in 30 of the largest companies around the world. I think it trades in a basket of stocks. I think overall, it is something that you should mm. be thinking about. 5% of your portfolio should be in these kinds of ethical, sustainable businesses going forward because I don't think you'll be going wrong over the longer term okay. on this one. Andrew? All interesting things, my learned friend, Mr. Dawes. Um, but... It's a, however, uh, <laughs> if, if you have a look at Cure, and we were talking about discounted cash flow and rising bond yields, that's really what's hurting them at the moment, clean yeah. energy. Correct. Um, if you have a look at the performance of the index over the last five years, because it's following the S&P, five, S&P Clean Energy Index, which is 30 different companies, as Adam was just talking about, the index itself was up 22% per annum over the last five years for all the reasons that Adam was just talking about. Wall of money money's yeah. needing to be spent to meet Paris, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I like it, but I would be wary just in the very short term until we get a read on what's going on with interest rates and what's going on with um, sort of inflation. But as a longer-term thematic, uh, you need to be in this. It's a timing issue, really. Okay. That's what it comes down to. So not, not, issue, but not for you at the moment? Not at the moment. Okay. All right. Uh, ben wants a view, Andrew, on the beta shares Australian resources sector. On the yeah. other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was just about to say, if anything, you know, this is actually a barbell trade, Koshi. Yep. So at one end of the barbell, you could have your CLNE. 
yeah. your ethical clean, clean energy. And then at the other end of the barbell, you could have your QRE yeah. because BHP with copper and, you know, this electrification yeah. isn't just going to happen immediately. Not going to happen out of thin air. One of the reasons there's this commodities boom going on at the moment, you know, demand for lithium, etc. So there is the, the fossil fuel piece is not going to go away in a heartbeat. So one way to play it is you have both in your portfolio. So I don't mind QRE. The one thing you need to keep in mind with QRE is that one third of the fund is BHP. Now that's a good no. thing or a bad thing, dependent upon how you look at it. I like BHP, but do I want one third of my index in one company, or? Yeah. Do I look at something like MVR, which is the Van Eck product, which is a more diversified portfolio? 56% mining's got some gold in there. So again, if you're worried about inflation, you might have that in there too. It's up 18% per annum over the last five years. And if you're a believer, we're in this super cycle relating to commodities, a la 2007-8, you need some resources exposure. It's how you go about it. Okay. I'm relaxed with this to buy. A buy for you, but you'd prefer MDR, would you? MVR, MVR. If, I, if, if I wanted a more diversified exposure. Do you though? No, I want right. BHP okay. because it is a behemoth. Okay. Yep. So one end of the spectrum to the other. I, look, I, this is a hard one for me because this is very much Australian-centric. Yep. And we will have, I will pick BHP, Rio, Fortescue, Woodside. You'll put your own together. I'll put my own yep. together. And really... Um, then you, if, if you don't have those basket of those big sort of four companies, then you're really going into the exploration or the, the yep. sort of the lower end and then it's the higher risk side of things as well for me. So I pick my own commodity stocks. This isn't one for me. I think that it is obviously leveraged to that commodity cycle. And I saw some notes coming out the other day that the commodity cycle is at 11 o'clock, um, right. which if anyone looks at an investing clock, 11 o'clock is the, basically the boom, the end to so 12 yeah. o'clock, which hits when then we go into the bust cycle and mergers and acquisitions and everything. So I still feel the resources still have time to go. I still think the commodity prices are still going to look good. Copper, those kinds of things will do very, very well. But we have had such an, a fantastic run, yep. BHP, Rio, as well as uh, Fortescue and Woodside. Woodside, so not so much, but we've had a fantastic run. I just think that you'd be well placed to put something either into the individual shares to get the real quality dividends that we'll see in the next year, year and a half. But I think it might be at the top end of the cycle if you're starting to potentially look at these resources okay. at this time of the market. All right. Uh, let's move on. Ron, um, Adam wants to be on the Bayonet Vectors FTSE, which is that the Financial Times sort of index, stock exchange, global infrastructure ETF. So Trump came in, said he was going to, going to massively build the infrastructure uh, in America. That yep. never really happened. He talked a lot, but really never anything happened. I think these infrastructures are a really great way to play growing a, a fantastic growing asset class. Um, it is not just passive, but it does look at uh, global infrastructure uh, around the world. And, you know, if you go through America, well, it's been a while since we've been there, but if you go through America, New York, it, it looks like the 1980s, like the, the airports, yeah. everything needs a facelift. Yeah. So, you know, this one should do well over that. Some of its sectors that it involves in 50% of utilities, 30% in transport and the rest in sort of other. 
I think global projections for utility spend is massive going forward. And I think that's one way that one, the Australian government, but also the US government is going to get themselves out of these holes of all of this money that they're QE that they're putting in. They're going to put a lot of that money into infrastructure. So I think it's it's actually not too bad. It is hedged again, so a little bit uh, otherwise from that. And it is actually giving a yield of around 3% because utilities yeah, are okay. a lower risk Yep. kind of investment inside of that one of its it does have some you know, very large holdings in uh next terror which is an energy business as well look i think you do okay in this infrastructure space i know there's more money coming towards this space so look i'm comfortable with this one i think it's, it's a good hedge and mm-hmm. it is a good business or good etf okay. going forward andrew yeah, Koshi, um, reiterating everything my learned friend says, probably the only thing to think about, though, is it's sort of um, the construction is 50-50. So 50% of it is in utilities, so like electricity providers, et cetera, 30% in transportation, 20% in others, other things like pipelines, et cetera. Owns a fair bit of transurban, um, so that's good. Uh, I guess the key thing to think about, though, remember I just said utilities is 50% of it. And again, we keep this theme is coming through today relating to rising interest rates and rising inflation. Rising interest rates are bad news for utilities and infrastructure stocks because, again, because of that DCF calculation. So the next three to six months are going to be really pivotal relating to the valuation of growth companies and also infrastructure companies. Uh, quite like this one. I think, Koshi, you and I have mentioned this one previously. Yep. The other one, though, I don't mind is Mitch, M-I-C-H, which is the Magellan Infrastructure Fund. It's more actively managed. It's not necessarily following an index. It's just trying to choose the best 30 or 40. Uh, IFRA is a buy, but on the rider being that if uh, interest rates are on the move, you're going to cop a bit of pain. Okay. All right. And finally, Andrew, uh, Paul wants a view on the Diver- Vanguard Diversified High Growth Index. Paul says, this is an ETF, um, so diversified. Do I really need to invest in any other stocks or ETFs? I plan to add to the holdings every couple of months, reinvest the dividends for at least 10 years. Uh, Would this be considered a sound financial plan or would it be considered foolish by having all the eggs in one, although diversified basket? Good question. Yeah. It's a cracker of a question, Paul. It's a shame that we've got about eight seconds to cover it. Um, look, what I what I would say to you and anyone else listening is we use a lot of these diversified ETF products. BetaShares is another provider that has this. I'm sure Adam's come across a number of clients where this is actually an appropriate product. And what I mean by that is they have a smaller sum of money to invest but are looking for diversification. Yeah, and as the name suggests, it's high growth. You can buy different flavors of this. You can buy a balanced one or a growth one or a high growth one, dependent upon where you fit in that spectrum relating to risk appetite. But you're getting a range of assets. You're getting Australian shares. You're getting international shares. You're getting fixed interest. You're getting bonds. So as a consequence, you are getting all those trades in one. And in the case of this particular one, VDHG, which I own, you get it, you're paying 27 basis points as the fee. That's a ridiculous fee, ridiculously low fee for what they're doing for you because mm-hmm. they're giving you that diversification. But without sealing Adam's thunder, I'm pretty sure he's going to say the one issue with it is it's all Vanguard. So, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Vanguard's a great manager, excellent relationship with Vanguard. But sometimes it's better to have different providers doing different things as their best of breed. But right. if you have a smaller sum of money, the cost they're doing it for is super cheap. There is nothing wrong with this at all. And for my um, kids' education fund, guess what I've got it in? 
This, this is okay. good. I like it. Yeah, well, and Andrew, you didn't steal my thunder, so it's okay. Um, but look, VDHG, uh, VDHG is a sound strategy, and I think you're absolutely right to have a look at this one going forward, Paul. I think this is a fantastic idea. Um, out of that, uh, in that ETF, there's over 10,000 securities. Wow. Right? 90% of those are in shares, 10% in bonds. So it is quite high growth, 90% in shares and then 10%. You could definitely look at another one, which is VVLU, which is the Vanguard Value Core Satellite Play. Potentially, maybe that might be a little bit less risk, but I like the way you're talking about considering uh, topping up this over a couple of regular yeah, so periods. It's a savings plan. Absolutely. So I think it's a really, really great mm. idea. And these Vanguard, they actually know how to do these products because they've said, you can't pick individual ETFs. Why don't we put it all together for you? Just buy one and you do it. Any of the clients that have a low balance, Andrew has just said, that low balance, absolutely, this is something that we put clients into. Excellent. All right, let's just recap the final five. The S&P Biotech, a yes from Andrew, a no from Adam yeah. Van Clean, no from Andrew. Uh, Adam likes it. Uh, the Australian Resources, uh, a yes from Andrew. Adam says, pick your own. Uh, Vanguard Infrastructure, a yes from both. And the high growth, a yes from both with a good savings plan element. Andrew Whelan from DP Advisory. Always great to see you, mate. Thank you for being uh, part of it. It's fabulous. Thanks, Koshi. Thanks, Dorsey. Always great Dorsey. fun from Shores. Thank yep. you again. Thank you. Uh, that's it for our show. This special on ETFs today. We'll do another one in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if you've got any sort of stocks or ETFs you want us to have a look at, um, um, send them in the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the Ausbiz TV handle. All the stocks in the calls portfolio, ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio is where you'll find them. Um, subscribe to the newsletter as well. End of the day, complete wrap up of what's happened on the market. You'll get Scuddy's view, a link to the podcast and all the most popular interviews on the platform, osbiz.co forward slash the COB. And the Startup Daily Show this afternoon um, is Taryn Williams uh, from The Right Fit, uh, a new venture that she is starting up and looking to raise funds for. So uh, that's coming up at 2 p.m. Uh, a lot happening on Osbiz this afternoon. You don't want to miss a thing. See you after the break.